0: once more for the video church this morning (laughs) we got to do it one more time that's so sad because beth is always like you never like look at the camera before you start talking how am i going to start this recording for the video (laughs) oh this is awesome She is going to put this whole thing on YouTube to, on Tuesday. Well, church, I do have to start by telling you a story this morning. And it's a story about my wife. And my wife doesn't know I'm going to tell this story, but she's going to like this story. It's a good story. This is, this is uh, a great story, actually. Um, you know, this study that we've been doing in Nehemiah really began as a heart longing in Sonia's heart. Um, I think it was, she, we were just talking about the other day, the beginning of the pandemic, she just got this sense from God that we need to look at Nehemiah. And when she shared that with me, I remember kind of like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, an, that's a good good thing to do. And as I shared before, when we first came to this church, the first or second, I think the first or second sermon after I actually was, the pastor here, maybe, uh, I preached on Nehemiah, and it was just one sermon on this idea of rebuilding the walls and the fact that we needed to rebuild our walls, um, and so it just resonated, and we, I think we both knew the book was about restoration, and we both felt that God was calling us to some restorative work here at the, at the church, and as I shared just recently also, I feel like these last 12 years that we've been here, there's been a lot of rebuilding, but we've, as, as Nehemiah referenced, we have about half our wall built. We're about halfway there, I think. You know, we're not there, but we're, we're, on, we're on the right trajectory. Uh, it took us a little more than 52 days, but that's okay. Um, but, you know, the timing just didn't work out at that moment, and so we put it off. And actually, as far as I knew, it kind of went off the radar. But then... When I was taking that partial sabbatical back for four weeks in February and March, I took four weeks with no preaching. I had reduced duties in the office. Um, Sonia began sharing with me again about Ezra and Nehemiah. And as she did, I think we just felt like this is the right time. This is, this is a good moment. And I really can't remember who suggested it first, but we decided to do this study for the whole church. So not just sermons, but actually one of our whole church Focused study times. Uh, just really felt like the Lord was saying, this is the time for our community to do this. And very quickly it became apparent we started looking for a guide. We're like, oh, we're going to have to write one. We're going to have to create because we, we're not going to find what we really want. Um, what we really feel like is for our church. So we decided to write it. And um, I don't know if ever you, any of you have ever written a curriculum for small groups. Uh, but it is incredibly time-consuming. I've joked with some of you that it feels like I'm writing and we're writing a term paper every week. You know? Um, and because of the timing with summer coming, we really felt like, let's just do this now. It's not finished, but by faith, it's going to be finished when it needs to be finished. And by the way, last night, uh, we put the final period on the last lesson, and it feels so good. It feel, I feel like those... Um, citizens of Jerusalem when they put the last brick in the wall it really feels like that because it has been so hard but so good it's been so good and it's time consuming it's difficult we were trying to cram 13 chapters of the word of God into six weekly lessons for us that were focused that were quality that were meaningful that were helpful And in our heart, that would be life-changing and community-changing. And that's hard work. Amen. Now, what's great is, right when we came off that sabbatical, my workload and my other job increased significantly. I had to do essentially like 40 hours of training in about four or five weeks, front-loaded 20 hours in one week. Uh, so that's just on top of whatever we're doing here plus coming off sabbatical getting back into things and preaching and all the stuff that has to happen but Sonia just jumped in she read Ezra, she read Nehemiah she read Zechariah, she read Haggai what else were you reading? she was like, she's like I want to know everything about everything that was going on for them so she wanted the background she wanted the context, she wanted to understand she was you know, pulling commentaries off the shelf in my office I was like, where are my Nehemiah commentaries? Oh, Sonia has them. You know, so she just, she wanted to know it inside and out. And there were some really, probably not funny for her, but funny for me, where she said, you know, this happened. I'm like, no, that didn't happen. It happened like this. And she said, no, it happened like this. And we looked it up, and she was right. (laughs) All this while homeschooling, providing for our family, taking care of the home, and then doing other work that she does. She doesn't just do those things. And I just feel like she had a fire lit under her by the Holy Spirit. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. She just had a passion for this. And so as we entered the writing process, I had ideas of where I wanted things to go. You know, I I kind of think, I think uh, uh, like this linear kind of like structure, structure, order, right? And I had made this outline of six weeks and then Sonia came in and brilliantly destroyed my outline and gave us a much better, much better outline, a much better study. Um, incredible insights into the scripture. Incredible insights. She has incredible insights into people, dynamics, relationships, systems. So she's reading the scripture with that in mind. And it was so good. And, um, you know... The reason I'm sharing this with you is because, one, you need to know what an incredible pastor you have in this woman. She is an incredible pastor. Um, she's really remarkable, and she loves you guys so much. The second is that I do want to honor her for all the hard work because I know I've gotten a lot of emails and texts, hey, this is fantastic, this is what it's been doing, and I don't think she sees all of them. And I share some with her, but, you know, she, her, her, Uh, I I was doing a lot of the actual writing but but she was the one who was kind of fueling a lot of that. And it was just uh, an honor really to work with you on that. Um, But the last reason I'm sharing this is that over and over Sonia shared these incredible insights that I just didn't see them. You know, I've been studying the Bible formally, formally for um, how old am I? (laughs) Uh, 20, 22 years and then informally before that uh, my dad's a pastor I would say my dad is a pastor theologian he's, he's very into original languages, history theology so I had that all my life and Sonia didn't grow up with that but she had these insights that were powerful and uh, there's one insight that she shared that's going to impact what we're doing today powerfully and there was some, somehow I just missed this thing in Nehemiah that was staring me in the face, staring us in the face and maybe some of you saw it, but I hadn't seen it I hadn't made the connection, and she's so good at this so we're sitting down discussing this lesson 5 that you guys are going to be doing this week and it's based on Nehemiah 8-10 through 10, which is where we're going to be this morning so I had my outline, I had my main points ready to go I would already said here's what we're going to do and look, they were good, they were good, it was good stuff but she came in and she said, she said something that reoriented my entire perspective on the passage. So I was seeing the details, but she was seeing this big picture. And that's when she said it. And here's what she said. God was not satisfied to restore the walls in Jerusalem. He wanted to restore the people. I'd read it. I'd seen it. I knew it was true, but I just hadn't. Been able to formulate it like God wasn't satisfied with walls. God wasn't satisfied with projects. God's not satisfied with a church that's still standing that could have been closed 12 years ago. God's not satisfied with worship services that honor Him and glorify Him uh, that are, you know, very different from what was going on here when we came. Uh, God's not satisfied with any of programs he's not satisfied with any uh, physical things he he cares about them look we're not saying God doesn't love them we're saying he's not satisfied with them because he's not satisfied until you and I and this church and this community and the people and living in Jerusalem's hearts were restored until lives were transformed until the pain and the trauma and the hurt of the past were healed God's not satisfied until he gets us. And that, for me, changed everything. And it was kind of like, mic drop, you know? I'm not going to drop a mic. (laughs) But I I want you to hear today. If you don't get anything else from the sermon this morning, I want you to know that God cares about the world. He cares about creation. He cares about societies. He cares about uh, cultures. He cares about political systems. He cares about family systems. But even if all those things were redeemed and restored, even if the world somehow had this perfect society that would be perfect for the rest of time, even then, God would not be satisfied until he restored you and he restored me. And beyond that, he wants to restore communities. Communities. And in the Western world, the world that most of us live in, it may seem odd to go from all these intangible things to an individual and then to a community because we kind of have... The individual is at the pinnacle. Especially in this country, it's about individual rights. I have rights that you can't infringe on. Whereas in other cultures, there's a focus on communal benefits. And so individual rights are submitted to the communal good. And that's really more like the world that the Bible was written in. But we live in a world where the community, the community's good is submitted to individual rights um, And just, you know, we saw this play out this last year and a half where there was this big conversation, is the health of the community more important than my right to wear or not wear a mask? And so we just saw this tension playing out in our society, right? And, you know, I think that there's actually really good elements of having individual focus, but there's also really good elements of having a community focus. And so these things are in tension, but uh, the point I want to make here is that For God, he often uses individual restoration for the ultimate purpose of restoring communities. But then he also uses the restoration of communities to restore individuals. So with God, we don't have to choose. There's tension, but God cares about both. And what we'll see, especially we're gonna see this next week in lesson six, is that God puts the community often first community comes first so as we look at this concept of people being restored not just walls and of communities being restored we're going to look at three different elements today Uh, one is the word of god one is remembering and then the final one is obedience okay so let's look at these together if you have your bible turn to nehemiah chapter 8 and we're going to look at the power of the word in restoration. And I'm going to actually do these kind of quick. If you're not doing our study, by the way, and you want a copy of it, we can email you a PDF. You have the whole thing. You can read through because I'm doing the 30,000-foot view. And in the study, we get a little more in-depth on some of these things. Um, and by the way, when, when uh, Mary said they're not to be done the day of, you cannot do these studies the day of. They're long, right? They're long. Now, they had to be long. They had to. Uh, Or we would have done a 12-week study, which would be fine. But um, it's just a lot. There's so much there. So give yourself time. So get into it. All right. So in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, um, it says this, that all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now, Ezra was, he was a priest, but he was also a scribe. He was, what that means is he was someone who had been trained in the law of God. He was kind of like, we kind of forget this sometimes, but, but someone who was educated in, in theology and someone who was educated in the law for most of history, they had a lot of common uh, understanding, a lot of common education, a lot of common um, uh, things that they had to be able to process because the Old Testament has a lot of law in it. And actually, the New does also. We usually just don't have eyes to see it. Uh, if you talk to an attorney who knows the New Testament, you can hear that come out and how they talk about it. But Ezra was someone who was an expert in the law. So verse 2, On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Men Women and all who are able to understand. We're talking about even children who who were old enough to understand. We're talking about anyone who could hear the word of God, uh, process it, and receive it, right? And he read it aloud from daybreak until noon, so that's 9 to 12, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion, and beside him on his right stood, and uh, this is always fun to name these names, but Medathiah, Shema, Anaya, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah. and on their left were Padaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. It's pretty good, right? Yeah. It's always like that's the hardest part of any sermon with these passages. And uh, I mean, oh, and then Ezra opened. Do we read this already? Ah, Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. So you guys should probably stand for the rest of the sermon, but I'm going to give you a break just this once. If you're at home, stand though. Just kidding. (laughs) Ezra praised the Lord the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. I love, Iliana that you had us raise our hands. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherabiah, Jaman, and Shabbat, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Haznan, and Paliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. So this is afternoon, three hours of listening and then an unspoken number of hours of teaching. Giving them meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And then what happens? The people start weeping. They're crying. They're in anguish. And I'm not going to read this whole passage. But I really want to point this out to you. Why were the people of God weeping when they heard the word of God? And you can answer that question from at least two different perspectives, probably more. But one is, they were crying because they realized they were sinners. Okay? They were crying because they realized that everything that had happened to them, the destroyed city, the destroyed walls, um, really all the way going back to the divided kingdom was all because of the unfaithfulness of them, their parents, and going back their ancestors. So why were they weeping? Because they realized they were sinners. But I want to answer this question from a different perspective. Why were they weeping? Because when the people of God heard the law of God, they received it as the word of God. And what I mean is this. That when they heard the scripture being read they sat there as if this is God speaking to me and so I'm going to listen with that attitude. What's the the importance of that? It's simply this. So often we come to this and we read it and we think oh well but it can't mean that. Oh but that's, that's just cultural. Oh, no, those were different times. God wouldn't say that today. Uh, oh, that might be generally true for most people, but it's not true for me. You know, what we do is we basically, we stand over this Bible, and we evaluate it, and we judge it. But what the people of God did on that day is they allowed the Bible to stand over them and evaluate them and judge them it's a totally different perspective it's a totally different outcome imagine being there on that day and hearing the law being read about you can't eat shellfish you can't eat bacon you can't wear clothes that have two different types of fabric You can't use this utensil with meat and also use it with milk. You have to have special dishes for the Sabbath. And on and on. And and I know that a lot of us, if we're being really honest, we read those laws and we think, those sound really stupid. Right? We think, I'm so glad I don't have to do those things. But what if you did? What if God said that All Christians needed to do those things. Would you do them? I think that a lot of us wouldn't because you know what? There's a lot of things in the New Testament that we're told explicitly to do that we're not doing. Right? But we often find ways to explain why we're not doing them, why this doesn't apply to me. Uh, We're going to look at so more of this in a little bit, but um, God doesn't know my financial situation, but that's why I don't tithe. God doesn't know my relational situation, so that's, not what, that's why I don't need to keep myself pure physically. Um, God doesn't know how hard my day has been, so that's why I can erupt on people, and there's, an, there's a reason for that. Or, you know, you could go down the list Oh, yes, the Bible says not no coarse talking, but, you know, we have freedom in Christ, and so I use these words. And what I'm not getting at is that we need to be fuddy-duddies or something like that. I'm not saying that we can never fail. I'm not saying that, that, um, uh, that we have to be perfect for the Lord or he won't love us. Nothing like that. But what I am saying is that in the church today, we often have a relationship like this with the Bible when God wants us to have a relationship like this with the Bible. So those people that day when the word of God stood over them because Nehom Ezra was up on a platform, right? The word of God came over them, right? And, and it wasn't just Ezra's interpretation. It was the word of God. And they received it as the word of God. I guarantee you, when the, Jew, when the Israelites were at Mount Sinai and they heard the word of God booming out like a thunder, they weren't sitting there thinking, huh, well, I don't know about that one, Lord. <laughs> when the lightning came down, they didn't say, well, but you don't know my circumstances. But if you did, I'm sure you'd agree with me. And at the end of the day, what we really want, what we really want, is the same thing that Eve wanted. We want to eat the fruit and then decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And God says, no, that's not how this game works. I know what's good and evil and I'm going to speak it from heaven through this book, through this book. And you submit to it because it's over you. You're not over it. It judges you. You don't judge it. It evaluates your heart. You don't evaluate it. When the people of God receive the law of God as the word of God, we weep. We weep. But it doesn't end in weeping. The great news about weeping before the word of God is that then you hear this message. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Church, it's okay to receive this word as the word of God. Because when you're confronted with your own disobedience and sin and unfaithfulness, then God comes in and he says, You've wept, but now it's time to rejoice because my joy is in you. And you can have the strength to face the reality of your situation without it destroying you. You don't have to crumble under the weight of the law. By the way, sometimes we have this notion like the Old Testament's all about law and the New Testament's all about grace. No, this is grace. God says, you've been despicable, <laughs> I'm putting words in his mouth, but you know where I'm coming from. You've been horrible for hundreds of years. But hey, I love you. Let's have a party. Can we just have a party? We'll take care of the sacrifices later. And by the way, in the Old Testament, there is no sacrifice for anything that you or I would pretty much call a sin. If you're chopping wood and the head of your axe falls off of your axe and it kills someone, you go and make a sacrifice. If it happens again and you knew that it was going to happen because it happened before, there's no sacrifice. There's a sacrifice for the accident, but there's not a sacrifice for not caring for your neighbor. If you accidentally touch a dead animal, you make a sacrifice for that. But if you kill somebody, there's no sacrifice for that. This is why David, when he... Remember he slept with Bathsheba and he killed Bathsheba's wife Uriah and he comes to the Lord and he says, sacrifices... What's it? What did I say? Bathsheba did not have a wife. She had a husband. <laughs> and he says, sacrifices you do not require... And we read that and we think, oh, it's because, it's because compared to the sacrifice, God wants even more David's contrition, a contrite heart. But it's really not that. It's that there is no sacrifice for that. You can't sacrifice for murder, for lying, for cheating, for stealing. Sacrifices are for ritual uncleanness, for accidental destruction of people or property, um, and, and for honoring the Lord. And so every time someone commits what we today would call a sin. They're forgiven by grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And by the way, there are laws and rules in the New Testament too. And we can't run to grace to pretend they're not there. We can't do it. But look church, when we sit under the word like that. And we let it just you know strip us bare and we mourn it Then the Lord comes and he says hey I've got something for you here's my joy you don't have it right now you don't have joy but I do I have joy because you know what I'm taking joy in the great love I have for you and the great love that I have for the fact that you are submitting to my word and that will be your strength You don't have joy today, but I do. My joy will be your strength. Isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So then what happens after this? So the people... um, This thing never works once we get started. There we go. So then after they're weeping, but God brings them to joy, then they're able to go into their own story and acknowledge their sin specifically and if you look at chapter 9 chapter 9 is just this story of the people of God it's the story of the people of God I'm going to read a little bit of it to you and then we'll do the same we'll talk about it some it says on the 24th day of the same month the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads so they had their joyous celebration and now it's time to repent Okay, this is uh, chapter 9, now in verse 2. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners. Why? Why did they do that? Well, for one thing is, they're the ones who had a covenant with God, so they were the ones on the dock. The foreigners were not responsible for obeying the covenant because they didn't have one. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors, They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. So again, hours, hours. And they spent another quarter in confessing and in worshiping the Lord their God. So that's six hours of daylight. Nine to noon, noon to three, three to six, six to nine. Quarter of the day in reading, quarter of the day in confessing. And then standing on the stairs were these Levites, and they cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And they said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And then they tell the story. You see this set up? They submit to the word again. They're under the word. They confess their sins individually and communally. And then they start storytelling. They remember. And church, remembering is one of the most powerful things that you can do and we can do for our faith. Because remembering always goes something like this. God's amazing. We, not so much, but God's amazing. So he starts... You made the heavens and the earth. You made the stars and the sky. You created us. You created a people out of nothing when you called Abraham out of Ur into Canaan. You created us. But we were unfaithful, and we were unfaithful, and we were unfaithful, and we were unfaithful. But God wasn't. He took us out of Egypt. He fed us in the wilderness. He forgave our sins. He healed us of the things that had beset us. He brought us into a beautiful land to take possession of. We ate from vineyards that we didn't plant. We lived in houses we didn't build. God took care of our enemies. And then we were disobedient again. And we turned our back on your law. We killed your prophets. We worshipped idols. We didn't keep the Sabbath holy. But God was faithful again. So even when we were cast out of the land, in other places it says the land spit them out. God brought them back. And these are the people who had been brought back. But their city was destroyed. So God sends Nehemiah and they rebuild the city. They had already rebuilt the temple. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And what we were doing earlier in our worship time was saying, why is God worthy? Why is, how is God worthy in your own life? But we could also do it, how has God been worthy in our life? And I think for a lot of you who have been here since before we were here, the stories you can tell of God's faithfulness, and I've heard many of them, the stories you can tell of God's faithfulness are amazing, and they're beautiful, and they're sad, right? And they're hard, but there's also joy in them. You know, um, it, I talked a few weeks ago about some of the things, like when we got here, a leaking roof, a uh, house that was it was in bad shape. pretty bad shape. I mean, not to, I mean, the, the skeleton was good, and it was, we, we did a lot with it, but um, we didn't ha- have a lot of programs. I do remember Paul uh, having a phone call with you, and I had met Paul and a few other of the deacons at the time and um we were tricked into meeting together by my brother-in-law and and so at the end of the night they asked me to come preach and so we were on the phone talking about it planning it and i said oh i've got three kids he goes oh okay well we'll we'll create a sunday school we'll create a sunday school for your three kids who are coming like that's where we were and a lot of you guys you remember how hard that was um but one other little story that I love to share is that, and, and I don't want to say anything that would be hurtful to any, anyone, but when we got here, the sanctuary, this platform was another, it was twice as high in sections, and it was multi-level, and there were risers because there was a choir here at one point, And it was covered in this blue carpet. And um, I actually like the wood better. <laughs> I don't know if any of you remember it. And we lowered it and we flattened it. And all of this wood and all of this labor, we're free. We're free. Because another church said, hey, we, we got all this wood from a ripped out basketball court. And we used everything we, we needed. If you want it, you can come and get it. And so three or four of us loaded up probably your truck. And we went and we got planks and planks of an old basketball court. And that's what this is. And then there were some other folks in another church that was also meeting here. And they had a carpenter. And he came in and he helped build it. And Kevin helped build it. And Joel helped build it. And I even did like a half an hour of work on this thing myself. Um, <laughs> and we, I, re- I remember I did lay like all the cables that go under the stage here. I mean, it was just it was crazy. But we came out with what's st- It's still standing. It, all these years later, no one's fallen through. It's, and it's just like little things like that. But that's nothing compared to the stories of the people that I can look around the room and say how you've changed and how God has put you know, new flooring in your life. It's a beautiful thing. Church, when you tell the stories, when you remember your unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness, and hey, and it's not all bad news. There are some really cool things that, that, that the Israelites did. Pretty amazing things. And they talk about those too. They overcame their enemies. They fought in battles. They, they, um, they did different things to, to care for one another. But they also were stubborn and stiff-necked. Um, they also turned their backs on the Lord. They also ignored the word of God and the prophets of God. But God said, you know what? I love you so much. I'm bringing you back. I'm bringing you back. What an amazing thing. What an amazing God. So when we sit under the word of God, it actually allows us to tell better stories about who God is and who we are. But here's the other thing. Don't think that telling those stories is about bashing yourself. It's actually about saying, This is how much God loves me. This is how much God loves me. I'm not worth it, but He does it anyway. I'm not good enough, but He's good enough for me. I'm not faithful, but He's always faithful. That's how much God loves me. So it can be an empowering message for restoration. Because as we talked about earlier, We need to know who we are. Who are you? You're someone that God loves so much that he's willing to do whatever it takes to redeem you from your own brokenness, even if it means his son dying on the cross. That's what the stories are for, to remind you of that, who you are, whose you are, what God's done for you, how much he loves you. But then there is one other piece to this restoration process. If this, Asher, you want to help me out? It doesn't stop with feeling good about yourself. It involves feeling good about yourself. There's either feeling bad about yourself, then feeling good about yourself. But then there is a response that God expects, and it's obedience. And I'm talking about radical obedience. When you look at Nehemiah chapter 10, and again, we'll just read a little bit of it. There's all this uh, storytelling, and then actually in verse 38 of chapter 9, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And then it names all the people who do that. I'm not going to read that list. But here's what they put their oath to. Um, verse 30, okay. Actually, 20. Let's read 29. Uh, Nehemiah 10:29. All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. Every seven years, they didn't work the land. God said, I'm going to give you enough in the sixth year to get you through year six, year seven, and half of through year eight. So that you're not going to be lacking of anything. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands. To give a third of a shekel each year. For the service of the house of our God. For the bread set out on the table. For the grain offerings and burnt offerings. For the offerings on the Sabbath. At the new moon feasts. At the appointed festivals. For the holy offerings. For sin offerings. To make atonement for Israel. And for all the duties of the house of our God. And then the priests do their thing. And then in verse thirty-five, we assume responsibility for bringing the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. We will even bring, verse thirty-six, the firstborn of our sons, and of our cattle, of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God to the priests ministering there. Remember when God passed over when they were when they were in Egypt and He passed over the first son of them, but He killed the first son of everyone in Egypt. From that day forward, God said every firstborn son, people, cows, animals, flocks, they're mine. So whenever an animal had the their first male offspring, they would go and sacrifice it in the temple. And if it was their son, then they would make a sacrifice to replace him. This is serious. Obedience. This is a costly obedience. Um... Verse 37, we'll bring to the storeroom of the house of our God our grain offerings, the fruit of all our trees, of our new wine and olive oil. We'll bring a tithe of our crops, the Levites. When you add up all of the offerings and, and tithes and gifts that the law requires, it's something like 23 to 33% of their income. These are people These are people who had just come out of some serious oppression. These are people who had just had all of their able-bodied men working on a wall instead of working in their fields. This is a people who had just been complaining because the rich had been selling them into slavery. And they're saying, we're going to give 23 to 30% 3% of everything we have out of obedience to the command of God. You know, it is interesting to me that tithing and giving comes up in Nehemiah over and over and over again. We're actually going to see it again before this study's over. Why is that such a big deal to the Lord who has the cattle on a thousand hills? Well, I think it's something like this tithing is a litmus test for faithfulness. Where your treasure is, your heart is also. So if you are not giving your treasure to the Lord, then you are not giving your heart to the Lord. In some measure. Okay? And then God says, I want it to be generous giving. I want it to be sacrificial giving. And so it seems that the scripture says that 10% is a minimum to represent generous and sacrificial giving. And if you give 10% of what God gave you back to him through the church or through the temple or through you know whatever it is, depending on when you live, then that will reorient your heart around all the other 90% of your money, but it will also reorient your heart around the other commands of God, and it will reorient your, your heart around your relationship with God. Not as a magic bullet, right? Because people get like, well, I give, I tithe. I tithe. You know, so the Lord, you know, and I'm blessed. You know, it's not about that. It's about an actual relational commitment to the Lord and to His church to be giving in a way that is difficult but doing it joyfully. And what you see is that these people were able to give joyfully. And we're going to talk more about that. I mean, that comes up again, you know, but it's just a recurring theme. The Sabbath comes up again and again and again. Not marrying foreign wives, not because God's racist. But because God says, hey, idol worshipers don't have a place in the worshiping assembly of Israel. And they're all idol worshipers. That's a problem. That's been a problem for Israel from the beginning. And God says, look, no, you can't can't do that. You need to be radically obedient to me. Because if you're not radically obedient, what will happen? Well, what, what we read about next week is that we just fall right back into where we were. Have, has anyone done a diet in here? Okay, so the way I am on diets is if I'm doing the diet, it's actually pretty easy. If I am not having sugar and not having bread and not whatever it is, then I'm okay. No candy, no chocolate, no ice cream. That's fine. I remember Josh and Amanda. We went out for ice cream one time, and I watched you guys eat ice cream. Do you remember that? You know, he doesn't remember. It happened. It happened. It was over, over uh, in in uh, wherever that place is. <laughs> no, no, we we were over we were over at the other place, Bubbling Brook, and I watched these people eat ice cream right in front of me. And you know what? It was easy. It was easy. But you know what I can't do? I can't have ice cream sometimes. I am horrible at having ice cream sometimes. I'm horrible about eating sugar in moderation. I'm an addict. I am a sugar addict. It is proven that sugar is more addictive than heroin. If I have any sugar, I have all the sugar. If I have no sugar, I'm fine. The Lord knows that we're like that. He's like, you need to follow all of them or you're not going really to follow any of them. And James says the same thing. If you, know, if you say, I'm not a murderer, but you speak harshly about someone or you lie to someone, then you've, you've broken the law. If you break one part of the law, you break all the law. You know, God says, there's a power of obedience and Restoration. And what's really cool is the obedience comes after the word of God, the grace of God, the stories of God, and then you get the obedience to God as a response to God's faithfulness to them. God doesn't say, get your act together and then we can have a relationship. He says, here's all of me, and then they get their act together. Isn't that beautiful? So... You know, if I were to to my takeaway, it's something like this. If you can even read that. When believers submit to the word of God, right? When the word of God is up here instead of down here. When we remind ourselves of the truth of God's faithfulness, and this is an important word, when we partner with the Lord in radical obedience... Restoration will come in the form of a whole community aligned with God's heart, mind, and will. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want a whole community that's in tune and connected with and relationship with and following after the Lord? Don't we want a a church full of disciples of Jesus that that are walking in the way of Christ? That's what I want. That's what Sonia wants. It's the word, it's the stories, and it's the obedience. And we can't take out any of those. So church, we are going to have, in our night of consecration, we're going to have celebration, but we're also going to need to have a reckoning. But don't let that keep you from coming. Don't let that keep you away. Because the reckoning is a beautiful and necessary part of that final picture of restoration. And then comes the obedience. It's one thing to repent of your sins in words. It's another thing to repent of it in action. So we're going to have an opportunity. It's coming. I never, well, I always say I always say I never do this, so I guess I do it. (laughs) As your pastor, I'm telling you, you need to put June 25th on your calendar, and and you need to be here. If you can at all be here, we need you to be here. Because this is a decision that we have to make. This is a choice, collectively, the family of God has to make. Right? And remember, we need your restoration so we can be restored. But you need our restoration so you can be restored. So, two-way street, So, let's pray. And then we're going to close with another uh, song about the incredible blessing, faithfulness, and goodness of the Lord for each of us through all generations. Well, Father, I think for myself, and I'll pray for myself first. God, for myself, my heart is in a place of tension. It's in a place of um, wrestling. And God, what I'm praying for me is that in every possible way that I would relinquish any authority that I believe I have over your word. Lord, whatever education I have, whatever insight I have, whatever whatever it is that I think gives me the right to have authority over your word. And I pray that you eradicate that from my heart. And that, Lord, for all of us, that that we would be a people who are under the authority of your word instead of the other way around. That we would be a people who are are, uh, tested by you, not presuming to test you we would be a people who when we read your word that we we certainly work to understand it rightly but that when we do understand it that that's the end of the story and then we just obey it so god i know my heart needs to change but lord that's why we need these stories of your faithfulness and lord you've done your part so thank you you have done you've created the stories and all we have to do is tell them you establish them we merely need to recount them and then, finally Lord when we are reminded of your faithfulness and goodness Lord help us to respond in a faithfulness of our own we will never be as faithful as you but we can always be more faithful than we are because your Holy Spirit is in us and your Holy Spirit is working toward that end. He is working in us to will and to act according to your good purposes. He is working within us to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. He is working in the world to limit and inhibit sin because you're some cosmic police officer but because you know that the less sin there is in us and the less sin there is in the world the more joy we will all have the more um,